Uh, some, some of you know I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in a really small town in New Jersey, coastal New Jersey, a little town called Beach Haven. A seasonal town, so uh, just a, a maybe near 10,000 people through most of the year, then the summer would just balloon up to like 10 times that amount. It was just people would come in from the cities and New York and Philadelphia and upper, upstate uh, New Jersey and inland, and they'd come and sort of come converge upon this town. And uh, we had arcades and amusement, little amusement parks and grocery stores and movie theaters. And then sometime after Labor Day, the whole thing kind of shut down. And people boarded up their windows and went home, except for the few people who were left to remain there. So I was part of that clan who lived on this island year-round in a very small town. And we had this small little beach uh, elementary school called Beach Haven Elementary. And it was this great big brick building set up by this massive blacktop pavement, and it was about three stories high, and it kind of housed all the kids for miles around, because it was just a small place. We had one school, and I happened to live close to the school, which was great, probably 10 blocks away, and able to ride my bike most of the time, uh, most of the time, if the weather was fair enough, and uh, my classes growing up were anywhere from six kids through elementary to maybe 12 at, at its largest, so a very small, kind of almost like a one-school, one-room kind of classroom kind of feel at this school. And uh, We didn't have a lot at this school. You spent most of your time, like I said, in one classroom, but we did have gym class, and I had those uh, experienced gym class like many of us have in elementary school and the horrors or excitement of that, depending on what side you're on, and doing things like climbing the rope or tumbling or... Um, uh, doing the pres- training for presidential fitness and such. And one of the things, of course, we learned at, at Beach Haven Elementary School where I grew up that was formative in my life was the game of kickball. And kickball, we had this big blacktop pavement on there, and uh, you kick a jelly ball, and it's kind of like baseball with a jelly ball. And so we had kickball there, and, and I hadn't experienced kickball until about a third or fourth grade because it didn't come around. It wasn't something we had ever seen before, and our gym teacher took us out, and we uh, learned to play kickball. And at the time, uh, I was... Uh, small and very, very shy and actually afraid of the, almost afraid of the gymnasium. I didn't like big spaces. I still have a problem with large spaces, so uh, very strange, but I was sort of a shy, timid person. I wasn't excited to necessarily jump into new things, but it was kickball day, so we went out to the, the blacktop uh, where we'd begin to play this game, and, and I think we had two gla- classes combined together to make the game work, and the teacher appointed two captains, who which, of course, were the most athletic in, in, the, in the grades, uh, and they begin to pick teams. And as I was, scrawny and shy, was not the captain, and uh, I was sort of a, a long distance probably from even the top upper drafts, but they begin to pick, pick kids for these teams, right? Begin kicking, picking kids and kind of followed suit, right? You kind of remember these situations as a kid. You get out in the sports field and they pick and they pick and they pick and you're kind of counting your way down because nobody wants to be last on the kickball field or in anything really in life in that, in that matter. But they begin to pick and I'm watching like, oh my gosh, it's like five kids left, four kids left, three kids left and I'm down to two kids left. I'm like, God, why me? Please do not make me be this loser who is last to get picked for kickball. Please make this other kid be the loser and let them get picked last for kickball. And the other kid next to me, uh, I'll call her Jessica Anderson because that was her name. So it was me and this girl, and, uh, and I just couldn't believe it. I, and I, it's amazing how these things get in your head, even at a young age. If you process back, they're so formative. And we talked about last week, if you were here, a little bit about the actor Ben Kingsley and this sort of hole in his heart from being lack of affection from his parents. And he's, he's a very accomplished actor now. He's done a great job, and he has all these accolades. But he, he had found a significant hole in his heart dating way back then. And as you process these things, it's interesting to find the things I remember as I was kind of leaning into these stories of acceptance or rejection. And for so many of us, we have these sort of hurts where we were chosen or not chosen 
for something, and it can stick with us, and we can move on, we can kind of bury it or, or whatever, but they're there, and they begin formative. So it was me and this, and this girl, we're standing there watching, and I'm, I'm just begging, because one of the captains was a boy, the other captain was a girl, I'm like, come on, boy captain, at least throw me a bone here, like we're the same, you and I, you know? And it just felt like an eternity. And I stood there feeling terribly alone with next to Jessica Anderson. I'm not sure if she cared. She probably thought the same thing, but she probably thought she was better than me, like I thought I was better than her, so she assumed she was going to get picked. I remember thinking, how did this happen? How did I end up in this sort of place of life that I was this guy on, on the field, right? I seemed to be fairly comfortable, but yeah, right, maybe I was, I was small or I was shy. I wasn't a good, good player, but man, how did I end up here? And these moments of life, and when you're waiting to get picked, and, and, and in kickball or any of these kind of sports, the last person who's not picked isn't really picked at all. Right? They don't get picked then. They just get thrown onto the team. And when I was in this, you know, back then, if you're old enough to remember this, before the sort of PC athletics we have now, today someone would jump in when it's down to, like, the last six kids and just split them all up, right? Uh, three here, three here. Let's, let's move on. So to, to, to save anyone the humiliation of being sort of picked last or left to be last. I remember hanging on to that moment, this being then, this is horrible. And I'm trying to act normal and act as if I don't notice the humiliation. I'm sitting there waiting, you know, thinking my name, praying for my name over and over again in my head. And I, and I hear Jesse, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, thank you, God, right? And, I, and, I, and I, I start to step forward, and I see Jessica move forward. I'm like, no, why, God, right? And I hear, no, Jesse. I'm like, oh, yes, thank you, God. And I just remember that relief of not being picked last, especially to a girl, in that moment, by this kid, Stefan, who should have picked me earlier on in the draft anyway, right? Remember these things. And it's hard to not get chosen. It's hard to not have someone believe in you, right? And it's, and it's fact when you're watching other people who are feeling they are accepted. And deep within the human soul is this longing to be known, to be loved, to be desired, right? Not just used or even, or, or even accepted. Well, I accept you, but to be wanted, to be desired. That's what we want from one another, to be desired by others, by another. That's what we crave from our spouse. It's my spouse to, to want me, to desire me. My spouse wants me to feel the same way about her. And we look at this, this story as we continue on in John 1. We're getting to the point where Jesus begins to call these disciples, those who he would call to walk alongside of him, those he, who he would believe in, those who he is picking to be with him. This is a key event in the ministry of Jesus and central to the ongoing work of God today. The gospels sort of end where they begin with this calling of disciples, and Jesus says, now you go and make disciples. And we look at John's approach heading into this, this portion of scriptures, the end of chapter one. He's established that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's God. He was there at the foundations of time. He created the universe. And yet some, somehow he's humble. And his prologue to the ministry of, of, of Jesus in John one, we see that, he, that Jesus is not coming onto this scene to do this mission just alone, but he's inviting others to join him, even to help him. So we'll read this chapter, uh, John one, and then we'll, 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 we'll pick it up pick it apart a little bit and and see if we uh, can find something for us. This is John 1, chapter 29, and uh, if you've been with us, you remember, if not, we're we're just coming out of Jesus' baptism. So Jesus had gone into the desert, and John the Baptist is baptizing people, and um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. Jesus joins right along with them. He gets baptized, and it's this really monumental event. The the heavens kind of open up, and the Father speaks down, this is my son son with whom I am well pleased, and people acknowledge, man, Jesus is the guy. So this has happened. And in the book of John, we move into this next kind of part of the story, but if we read Matthew or some of the other books, we'll understand that right after Jesus' baptism, he went away into the desert for this, this series of temptations, 40 days. John doesn't include that in his narrative. It wasn't key for him to include it, but what we'll, where we'll pick up, the baptism happened, 
40 days, Jesus retreats in the desert, and then we get here. Next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, this is John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has to pass me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. And so John's speaking this out, what he had saw. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove remained on him. And this is after the fact. The baptism had happened. Forty days or so has gone by. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So this activity is still happening in the desert. John's still probably doing his baptisms. He's calling people to repentance. Jesus has gone away for a while. Now he's come back. The next day, John was there again with, his two, disciples, with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say, say this, they followed Jesus, turning around. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher or master, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard that John, what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, and they brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. So we begin to see this, this interaction with these first two, which will become Jesus' disciples in this story. And they were, dis- they were John's disciples ahead of time, so they didn't kind of come out of nowhere. And this discipleship process in, in the Jewish culture of that time, and some of you may be familiar with this, uh, all the kids started from a young age, like four or five. They went into basically an elementary school where they would learn the, the Torah. They would learn the, old, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in Hebrew. And they would memorize great portions of, of this, if not the entire thing, as children. So as young kids, this was their focus. And they would say that to about the age 12, and those who excelled would go on. So if you got to age 12 and you had, you had memorized the first five books of the Bible and you seemed sharp and astute, you would move on to a secondary school, which would set you up to become uh, potentially a disciple of an established rabbi. Right? So, so all the kids want this. So anyone we read about in these stories, uh, Peter, Andrew, they had gone through this sort of schooling and they ended up in, in a certain place. Uh, Andrew, as we, as we pick up here, and then Peter, uh, based on where they're at following John the Baptist, we, we would assume they did not get picked up by a rabbi. They did not excel. When we learned that about most of Jesus' disciples, right? We've heard that. They're not necessarily the most scholarly, smartest kids on the block, the guys who Jesus calls unto himself. But he has a reason for picking them out. And we're just going to go through this a little bit. So John was there again. He's with his two disciples. So Andrew was one of the disciples. We get to read on a little bit further. Now, what it meant to be a disciple was not just a follower. So Andrew was one of John's disciples. It meant a lot. It speaks highly of Andrew. We can glance over that, and it's very easy. I've heard these messages a hundred times. The disciples were nobodies. They, just had, they didn't do anything, and all of a sudden Jesus said something, and they followed him, and they gave their life to him. It didn't really work that way. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, who at this time was the most radical religious prophet the world had ever seen. John the Baptist was this crazy camel hair, locust eating, telling the religious stories to, to, to repent. He's baptizing people. He's claiming the kingdom of heaven. He's a radical guy. 
And Andrew was one of his disciples. And a disciple, again, wasn't just a follower or he'd, he'd occasionally come along. Man, he was behind this guy every step of the way, learning his ways, uh, serving him, learning the, the ministry that he was doing, day in and day out, just diving into to following John the Baptist. John the Baptist, again, he's out in the wilderness doing crazy things. Andrew was a fisherman. He might have had to leave his fishing for time, fishing uh, business for times to go follow John the Baptist. So this is a strong guy to begin with. Now, maybe he didn't make it according to uh, the Torah sort of way of schooling, that rabbi, but he is a strongly passionate, committed believer in the kingdom of heaven. I think that's important because we kind of just dismiss the disciples sometimes of where they're coming from. And he steps into this calling. He begins to follow Jesus, right? You see, we see, look, the lamb, there's the Lamb of God in verse 35. We saw Jesus passing by. There's the, look, there's the Lamb of God. When his two disciples heard this, they, they followed Jesus. And it's interesting for John in this moment, right, because these are his disciples. These are his close guys who are serving him, part of his ministries. Jesus walks by, and they're like, we're going to go with that guy. See you later, right? It's like upgrade. We're moving on. But we know enough about John. That's the most, that would be the most exciting thing for him, to send his people on their way. And so Andrew steps into this, this following of Jesus, uh, not sort of a nobody who was just fishing, had no, no idea what was going on, but already investing in the kingdom of heaven. And Andrew stepped in, and I say it this way, he stepped into his calling having prepared in anticipation. Right? He believed something was going to happen, and he positioned himself the best he could, the best he could find in his context, to be available for that. And I think that's a great challenge for you and I whether that's, that's spiritually or, or relationally or within uh, business or where you want to get to, it's easy to kind of sit back and just hope for something and do nothing about it. But what really, what really gets us about Andrew here, he has stepped into this role. He's, given, he's already been giving up his life to the cause when Jesus calls him in. He's already a strong, passionate believer. He's already sacrificing. And when Jesus says, yeah, you're going to come with me, I want that guy. He stepped into his calling, having prepared an anticipation. And so for those of us who are processing or wrestling with something maybe better and more important in life, maybe that's spiritually or dry or you just want something else, but what are you doing to prepare now? Even if you don't know what that thing is, how are you getting ready now? Andrew would not have known exactly what he's going to get into, but he was getting ready. He believed the kingdom of heaven was at hand. John the Baptist was praying, we've got to make the road straight. We've got to pay the highway through the desert wilderness. And that time when a dignitary was coming to town or a king, a herald would go out ahead and say, oh, my gosh, this king's coming, this dignitary, this important person's coming. Let's clean up our roads, right? They would make the roads straight. They do work. And in John's way, they were beginning to be compassionate and caring toward one another. So Andrew steps into this already prepared. I have a good friend who's, who's single, and he is... Uh, uh, we'd love to not to be single at some point, but he's, so he's, he's thinking about that in anticipation, and he's brilliant because what he does is we hang around and talk or he interacts with people who are couples or, or, or dating as a little notebook. When an interesting idea for a date comes up, he writes it down. He writes down great first date ideas in anticipation that someday he may have first dates coming his way, and it's not going to be that awkward like, what should I do, what should I do, what should I do? He's got a log of now dates in anticipation that someday there's going to be a girl in his life and those dates will come. How old is he? Sarah? A little young for you, I think, right now. But he's ready. But that's a great guy, right? 
But there's something about preparing in anticipation for something that's yet to come. What can I do today for the thing that I hope to get somehow? What can I do today to help that along? You can't do everything for that. We don't know everything. Andrew didn't know everything what the Jesus was going to look like as he followed. But what could he do? And he was investing in John the Baptist's ministry because he believed that was the next closest thing to that which was coming. He stepped into his calling, having prepared in anticipation. The next thing we see about Andrew here is these guys go by, as Jesus walks by, they're with John. He sees Jesus goes by, and they just start following him. John says, man, that is the guy. That's the guy. And I think the message here is to look for where God is moving your life and join him. Look for God, where God is moving and join him. Maybe you're doing one thing. Maybe you're really invested in something that's great. You know, John the Baptist's ministry was awesome. But when a move of God comes through your life, are you even available to jump onto that? Whether that's a person, a missions trip, maybe that's through uh, uh, giving of resources, right? being available to someone who's hurting. When an opportunity comes up that has God on it, are you even available to jump in? Andrew said, man, that's, that's where God's moving. I'm going to do that now. And he kind of moved on from one thing to the next. And I think that's a, a, another element of this, of this person of Andrew. And we'll kind of see some of the other disciples that are overlooked sometimes as we just dismiss them as like, oh, they were nobody, teenage fishermen who had, noth- who had nothing else to do, so they follow Jesus. Man, these guys are, they're attentive and attuned to the move of God. I think as they follow Jesus, it's kind of interesting, this exchange. They, they, drop, they drop what they're doing with, with John. They move on. They start following Jesus in verse 38. It says, Jesus picks up on this. He says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Right? So Jesus is cruising in his sort of mystical rabbi kind of way. And these two guys are like, man, let's go with that guy. And I don't know how far back they are. Maybe they're hoping not to be noticed. Maybe they're hoping to just kind of spy on Jesus for a little while, play it safe. Like, oh, I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but I don't want him to see me yet, right? I think we've all kind of been there even in the, in the church or with our faith, like, ah, oh, man, I'm interested, but I don't want to get too close. I don't want to get sucked in, right? So Andrew, they're kind of following him. They're kind of, kind of waiting to see maybe where Jesus is, where he's going. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? What do you want? And it's kind of like, oh, shoot, he caught us. What do we want? What do we want? They kind of picture, they kind of look at each other, like, what do we want? I don't even, I don't know. What do we want? So they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? They don't really answer the question. They don't really know what to say there. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, come, and you will see. Jesus said, let's just continue this. Let's continue this on. This following, what you're about to embark on, what you're stepping into with me is not sort of a a dialogue we can have have on the side of the road right here and figure it all out. It's all right. You got some questions. Just come with me. And, they, and so they went and saw where he was staying. They spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So they spent time with Jesus. They didn't try to rush this thing. Jesus isn't about rushing anything. He says, you come with me, and we'll figure it out. And that's hard for some of us because we like to know where we're going or where God's going, right? God, where are you going? Because I want to make sure I'm sure I want to go with you. I'm not sure. Can you explain it to me a little more? So just following Jesus. So there was this tremendous act of faith in here. And Jesus will lead, but he won't always tell, right? Jesus wants to lead our lives. He doesn't always tell us where he's taking us, but he wants to lead our lives. He says, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. Just take the next step, right? And we like to know where we're going. I know it drives my wife crazy when we're going out on a date or we're going to go do something together. So where are we going? I'm like, oh, you'll see. Man, she hates that. And because she hates it, I tend to do it more. 
because what should I wear? Where, you know, the whole thing. And I, and I get it. You want to be prepared. And maybe they want to be prepared. And Jesus says, just come. Let's spend some time together, and we'll talk it through. So they go and spend the afternoon together. Next part, part of this story, we see uh, Andrew's brother come on to the scene. This is, this is Peter, and this is uh, obviously one of the sort of most well-known disciples. And Andrew, the first thing he had kind of did when he got a chance is he goes and tells his brother. He says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard John had said and followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we've found the Messiah, that is the Christ, brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, translated Peter. So Andrew, in this, in this moment, right, he's picked up on this. He's got enough time with Jesus. He knows something's happening. He's committed. He's going to share with his brothers that this is important. This is important. And Peter goes. Cephas goes. And Jesus gives him this new name. And I think what we learn from Peter in this moment is Peter was ready for something new as well. It doesn't say explicitly that Peter was a, a disciple of John the Baptist, but he seemed to be spiritually involved already. It didn't take long. Andrew's like, hey, this, this is the guy. Sweet, you got the guy. Let's go. Jesus like, oh, you're, you're uh, uh, Simon. Let's give you a different name. Okay, cool. I got, I got a new name. Let's go. Like, he was ready. Right? Later on in the, book of, in, in the book of Luke, there's an account of the disciples being called, and we'll get into this in later weeks as we get there, but... Uh, there's, a, there's a scene where they're on the boat fishing, right? If you remember hearing about this story, and they're fishing, and Jesus says, come, drop your nets, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. They just kind of go and leave, right? And that, that happens, but that happens after this encounter. When Jesus saw those guys and called them off their boat, he had already had a relationship with them. They had already his disciples. And the disciple in this time, they didn't have to quit their job. Some of them were able to. Many of them didn't. They, were, they had their occupation, and they followed a rabbi. So this time, they're walking behind Jesus, We'll see later on, there's a process when Jesus says eventually they grow to a point like, okay, now we're going to stop doing everything. We're, we're going somewhere else, right? But he kind of ramps up to this sort of follow me, um, extreme kind of follow me moment, right? And I've heard that talk, follow me, and, then, and they, they never saw Jesus. They drop everything, and they go like, man, Jesus is inviting them into time with him. And I think that speaks a lot about the heart of God for you and I. Speaks a lot about the heart of God for you and I. And John says he is inclusionary. He invites us to come walk, to spend time, to eat with. He invites Peter into his, his presence. He gives Peter a new name. The thing about a new name in the Old Testament, uh, when God gave someone a new name, or even the rulers gave someone a new name, it was it it, it um, signified possession. So it signified, now I, I own you. So in a negative sense, we sit in the book of Daniel, and Daniel and his friends were held captive. They got new names, and, and that was a, a negative sense of possession. Now we own you, and you're no longer yourselves. You're, you're, you belong to us, so we're taking away your name. But in a positive sense, in the father heart of the sense, in God's sense of the word, when he gives a, gives a new name, it was like, now you belong to me. You belong to me as a, in a family way. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, you belong to me, man. You are with me now. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus would say, we, 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 you're with me. You belong to me. Jesus has a name for you. You belong to him. So, so Peter kind of walks into this, this situation. And we'll get into this in, in coming weeks, but I, I just kind of want to process that a little bit as we go on through, through the setup of these disciples. So kind of move through it very quickly as if they had nothing to offer. Well, they, they couldn't make it in school, so they were fishing, and then they just went and followed Jesus because nothing else to do. And fishing was a great trade at this, part of, in this, this time in this part of the world. 
And they already were wrapped up in some, some pretty powerful work. But they were attentive to the move of God in their life. I read this great Francis Chan quote this week. It says, we never grow closer to God when we just live life. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. Right? And it's easy for us sometimes to say, man, it's not about doing stuff. It's just about being. Eh, kind of. Right? It's deliberate attentiveness. And what I could see so far from these guys who Jesus is calling close to himself, they were attentive to the move of God in their life. And then they were beginning to walk and follow this rabbi and to do incredible and see incredible things. I also believe in this story is that Jesus is able to work with anyone willing to try. And so it's not such that we have to be so great. He will call us unto himself, the creator of heavens and the earth, becoming man, the incarnation, about to go on this mission to save the world. He said, I want to take some people with me. I want them to join me, and I want them to even help me. That's a great story we're still able to live today. So we're going to close in a song of Noah come up. I just want to encourage you, one, that you have what it takes to follow Jesus. I believe that because I believe that he believes that. And it's just about making some effort. But there is a challenge of attentiveness to your life spiritually and where God's moving that I believe we don't have to do, but man, if we step into it, who knows what will become? Who knows what will come our way? Who knows what opportunities will land in our lap? So God, thanks for this afternoon. Thanks for your story. Thanks for the honesty of the Gospels, Lord. Thanks for the writer John and his ways communicating. God, I pray for uh, just us as a community collectively and individually that we would be attentive to your work around us, in our schools, and our offices our fields, our parks, or in our bars and restaurants and homes and moms and coffees, God, we'd be attentive to your movement, Lord. We would be available to join you. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.